I'm Ben Horton, and you're listening to Undercurrents, the podcast from Chatham House. Hello and welcome back to another episode of Undercurrents. It's great to have you join us today. It's been a while since I did one of these, although you may have heard the mini-series that we published recently on energy access for refugee camps, which was recorded a while ago, but which we only published last week. I hope you enjoyed them. If you did listen, thank you very much. This week, we just have the one interview for you. And I'm joined again by friend of the podcast, Dr. Yujia from the Asia-Pacific program at Chatham House for a discussion about the Chinese economy, drawing on a recent article which she published in the World Today magazine. And really in this conversation, we get into the kind of trajectory that the Chinese economy is following over the course of 2022, thinking in particular about the effects of these multiplying crises that we're seeing at the moment, which are having great ramifications for the global economy, even let alone the Chinese economy. And these include, of course, the COVID-19 pandemic and the current situation in China, where we're still seeing mass lockdowns, very strict quarantines for certain cities, even Shanghai being affected recently. Of course, that twinned with the ongoing conflict in Ukraine, and the effect that that's having across the world in terms of food systems, energy prices and supply chains more generally. And these external crises, of course, play into domestic economic debates that are ongoing in China about President Xi's aspirations for reducing inequality and raising the lowest paid up and providing them with better livelihoods. And then also this need to counteract the cost of living crisis and to generally tighten the country's belt. So Yujia talks me through all of this in what we term the perfect storm that is currently afflicting China's economy and suggests some pathways forward that we may be seeing as the year progresses. I hope you enjoy listening. So now I'm joined by Dr. Yujia, the Senior Research Fellow on China in the Asia-Pacific Programme here at Chatham House. Yujia, thank you so much for coming back on. Nice to see you again, Ben. I'm delighted to see you in the studio. Absolutely. Yeah, I know. It's been a while since I did one of these interviews, so it's very nice to be back here with you. Such an honour. <laughs> <laughs> we're both making rare appearances. Indeed, indeed. <laughs> but we're back, listeners, for another instalment of our Beijing briefing series here, um, which we've been trialling on undercurrents um, over the past year. Um, and it accompanies a series of columns that Yuja has been writing for the World Today magazine. They're all online. You can check them out now. We will send you links in the show notes for this episode. But Yuja, today we're going to be talking about your column that you wrote for the April-May issue of the magazine, which is titled China Puts Prosperity on Hold. And I suppose I'd like to begin just with what were you trying to get at with this article? Could you tell us a bit about, about the angle? Well, what I'm trying to describe is I'm trying to describe a perfect storm for China's political economy. On the one hand, that Xi Jinping is very much interested in to make the entire population become richer and also to make the part of the population that have not really been benefited from Deng Xiaoping's economic reform 
that getting richer. So closing that income gap, you know, the old question, the old challenge of the Chinese economy. And therefore, he has introduced this initiative, the so-called Common Prosperity Initiative, in the last August. But however, I think because there has been so much frustration and concern among the private entrepreneurs community, among the existing Chinese middle class, that by having this initiative being introduced to them and their personal wealth will be affected. So firstly, that's the reason number one, because there's so much opposition across different aspects of the Chinese society on this particular initiative. So that is one reason it has been put on hold. Now, the second reason, what the reason why I call it perfect storm, because it's a very much a dangerous cocktail. On the one hand, you have an internal economic transition, whereas on the other hand, you have the war in Ukraine running along. And then these will, again, to make the Chinese leadership to rethink, at the end of the day, it is whether the political stability or economic prosperity they wanted in the year of upcoming 20th Party Congress, which is supposed to be a coronation for presidency for his third term. So that's the reason we have given this, this title, but suggested China is putting prosperity on hold. Yeah, fascinating. And that perfect storm metaphor really encapsulates the challenges that the Chinese economy is facing at the moment. Could you just tell us a bit about the economic impacts maybe of the war in Ukraine first, just to give us a bit more detail on that? Obviously, here in Europe, it's had very significant effects. And we're obviously seeing, uh, particularly in terms of energy prices, it's a serious concern for Western economies and economies that are reliant on natural resources from Russia and Ukraine. How has China been affected by that? Has it seen something similar? Well, we haven't seen any actual impact to be felt for the Chinese economy for some particular reason. Firstly, Russia has been among the largest energy suppliers for China. Mm. So that renminbi ruble deal is happening. So the energy supply for China is, seems to be reasonable. But however, what really worried the Chinese leadership, it is the food security, mm. the food supply and whether China will be able to searching for alternative source on the agricultural products that replacing what they have imported from Ukraine. So that is the biggest concern, the food security and also the food price. So whether those food price would also push up for the cost of living. So this would make um, many Chinese households become even poorer after the COVID, after two years of irregular economic activities, after two years of very little job prospects. So I think that's the one layer of the complaint. Now, second layer, this is really linked to the political stability because we don't need to go back to the history for too long. 30, 32 years ago, it was because of the food price and it was because of hyperinflation that caused people going in on the street and people go on the Tiananmen Square. Yes, on the one hand, you have a certain intellectual searching for democracy, but I think for a larger reason is the Chinese laborers are searching for a better quality of life and searching for a reasonable living standard. And because of this, such a high inflation, and people have fired all sorts of complaints. So the Chinese government is very much worried about a similar scenario may happen. Yeah, absolutely. And I'd love to dig in a bit deeper into those potential implications of this. But just to add another plank to mm. the kind of causes of this crisis, could you maybe tell us a bit as well about where we are with COVID-19 in China? Because it's been at least reported here the extent to which there are still these challenges with the pandemic. We've seen scenes from major cities such as Shanghai and others where 
there have been sort of citywide lockdowns even in 2022. So how is that contributing to this kind of economic trouble? Well, it contributed significantly. But again, I think the Chinese government is actually a victim of its own success in the mm. past two and a half years on its own COVID control measure. Because, of course, the nature of COVID, the nature of the virus has now become so infectious, become so transmissible. So it become much harder to control. However, Beijing is insisting on this so-called zero COVID strategy. Mm. It is extremely difficult to eliminate Omicron virus completely from the society. So, uh, so they perhaps do have to rethink and reconsider this option. Now, secondly, because the COVID cases in the past two and a half years are so low in numbers, so most of the elderly population of China had absolutely no incentives to get vaccinated. I mean, some of my parents' friends recently they only got their first dose. So giving a very low coverage on the vaccination among the elderly population, like say, for example, around 36% of the Chinese elderly population aged 60s above had COVID vaccine coverage, they're fully vaccinated. And that's relatively low compared to this part of the world. So that's the second concern. The government could not dare to open up the society. Now, the third concern, it is to do with the limited numbers of SU beds in China. So with a population of 1.4 billion, and we only have around 30,000 hospitals, and with around SU bed occupancy is on a similar level like in Bulgaria. Surely that is not sufficient for a large country like China. So I think there's three reasons added together. Now, firstly, the very important reason, it is about political loyalty. So it is about the president giving direction, giving instructions, giving executive order, and therefore all the provincial heads will have to comply. And each provincial head will compete who are the most com compliant one, irrespective whether it's a scientific solution or not. So that's where we are regarding COVID case in China. And of course, long term, this persistence with a zero COVID strategy is going to continue to cause problems, I suppose, for economic growth, economic sort of productivity. Absolutely. I mean, I think while we spoke today, and I think Polo Bureau again had a meeting today in Beijing to use the word, the situation has never been so grave. So that is just to indicate to you the mountainous challenge of the Chinese economy for this year. And that you may have noticed that World Bank IMF and also major investment banks has really adjusted, lowered the growth prospects of China for this year, we say around 2%. Actually, to be honest, we would actually expect to see any growth at all, given the current situation, if it's going to last until quarter three or quarter four. So zero COVID, the push-up for the cost of living, and then together with this war in Ukraine, as I said, is a perfect storm for China. So to introduce any bold economic or political initiative like common prosperity will be very difficult to justify. Yeah. And as you say in your article, the alternative then is this thrift strategy. Could you maybe tell us a bit about that and, and what its characteristics are? Well, it's a very interesting term, comprehensive thrift strategy. <laughs> it's pretty much just to try to tell every single Chinese household, you have to tighten your belt yeah. and having extra piggy bank to cover for running days. And that is the, the ethos behind um, thrift strategy. And firstly, while you're in the restaurant, you can't order as much as you like. You only order limited quantity of food and you can eat 
And it's also about saving energy saving, so the energy efficiency, and this is also to do with the consumption on certain white goods or consumption on certain life essential items that you have to consume less. So that is all together. So it's not exactly a strategy that having given very clear instruction, but instead it is about every aspect of Chinese society should have thinking about the longer term or medium term supply chain of China perhaps will be disrupted. And therefore, every single Chinese household will be affected. So I think it's more, again, it is a political campaign that asking every single Chinese citizens to bear in mind because we're now in a time of war and also because we're now in a difficult time of COVID. The good old days may not come back very soon. Yeah, that's fascinating. It's got all these resonances of dig for victory kind of solidarity campaigns that we saw in Britain during the Second World War, for instance, and the whole rationing regime and all of that sort of thing. I I wonder, though, how you think that will be received among the population or if if you have any sense of like how it's being implemented, just because I know a, a war is happening, but China's not directly implicated in that war. So does the narrative hold in that regard that we're in this kind of strife time and you have to pull together? Or do you think we'll see more frustration emerging in response to comprehensive thrift? I think we'll see a mixed responses across different generations. And of course, from a parent's generation, they have experienced the Great Famine, the Great Leap Forward, Cultural Revolution. So they have experienced the period of that the Chinese household had to use coupons to purchase their everyday essentials. So my parents' generation are quite accustomed to that. But however, for the younger generation like us, what we have experienced is that the life of plenty, the life of full of choice, the life of full of consumer products, and we want to buy whatever we want. So or perhaps we have to change the shopping habits and consumption habits among the Chinese younger generation. So I think if you look into the Shanghai lockdown, I think particularly many Chinese young consumers complain they can't have a proper coffee that is purely arabaca beans. So this is sort of demand (laughs) from the Chinese consumers and you wouldn't expect this from any normal household. When we've spoken on the podcast before, Mm. we've spoken a bit about this transition that Xi's government was trying to make towards an economy that was more sort of internally self-sufficient and maybe less plugged into global markets and less reliant on global trends. Do you think this perfect storm is going to have any implications for that? Do you think we will see changes to how China approaches foreign direct investment, engaging generally in economic relations with its neighbours? I think this would put the Chinese government again on the pause for thought for a second. Consider whether this whole talk on internal circulation, so relying on internal demand and supply, internal consumption and production, whether that would work for China in the age of huge uncertainty, firstly. Now, secondly, let's be frank that the reason for China's economic success in the past few years, and especially in the time of COVID, it is not because of domestic consumption. It's precisely because of the Chinese export volume have increased exponentially. Again, it's the external circulation that prompted China's economic growth. So at the end of the day, the government will have to rethink on this strategy and also these ideas of that international isolation would that really be beneficial towards China? Perhaps not. So if China would like to avoid the similar fit of Russia, which enduring for the moment, 
is perhaps would be best for China to encouraging further financial opening, encouraging even larger volumes of foreign direct investment, and also encouraging its own companies and to be able to set its foothold on even larger market across the world. And also, of course, very importantly, to resume the normal channel of communication, to resume the normal channel of transportation, and that would make the foreign direct investment easier to inflow back to China. So I think because of war in Ukraine, and also precisely for China's own economic survival, these ideas of dual circulation, perhaps we'll hear the discussion of both internal and external circulation goes hands in hands, and less so just about internal circulation as what we have discussed back to 2020 and 2021. Absolutely, that's fascinating. That point you just made on the lessons that China is learning from Russia, given the war in Ukraine, I'd love to hear a bit more about that, and and particularly thinking about the sanctions regime that Russia has been kind of subjected to in response by a fair chunk of the major economies in the world, if not all of them. What sort of takeaways do you think China's <laughs> China's getting from that? I think two points in lessons that China have learned has learned so far is, um, firstly, there's a sanction, and therefore you have to comply that sanction. And uh, so far, it seems to be being pretty compliant, and most of the Chinese state-owned banks, which have uh, exposure on U.S. dollar-led assets, that has suspended its trading with Russia, a uh, while before the war in Ukraine. And I think it's because of what happened with the Chinese communication company, telecom company Huawei, and the Iran sanction, and that taught them a lesson. So the Chinese state-owned companies have been super careful. And the only left, the small to medium-sized provincial banks that have no U.S. dollar-led asset exposure to deal with Russia directly. So that would avoid the consequences of secondary sanction. Now, a second lesson that China has learned is this, whether the Chinese government has purchased far too many U.S. Treasury bonds and over-rely on, on U.S. dollars. And that has actually happened in the aftermath of the global financial crisis. So it doesn't really show that U.S. is in decline because you don't really purchasing a treasure bond uh, of an, a declining power. You're purchasing on a, a power that is rising or that is stable. So clearly, this really go against this whole idea that East is in rise and West is in decline. But this over-reliance on U.S. dollars, and that's also prompt China rethink on the role of renminbi internationalization. The role of that using different payment system could perhaps exclude dollar to some extent. So these are two point lessons that China has learned. And do you think that reliance on the dollar, is that something that you think will continue to influence China's foreign policy decision making in its own sort of backyard? You know, obviously, a lot of people have been talking about Taiwan and South China Sea and this sort of context and things. Do you think the way that Russia has been treated in the global economy since Ukraine will, will have some resonance for Chinese decision makers? I wouldn't say we have much resonance, but surely Beijing will think very carefully that any military escalation started from one part to another, it is not easy because everyone bound to think about exit strategy. Because for the moment, I can't see any Kremlin uphold any exit strategy at all. So any war you want to start it, you have to know how it's going to end. But we don't know for this moment. And then that would also put forward to the Chinese decision makers when they come to Taiwan what China should do. But then let's leave it for another podcast series of this. 
But then come back to the question on economy, I think the Chinese government will have to think about whether to collaborate with the international institutions that would actually working for China's favor. So what you expect to see is that you're going to expect to see China play a much larger role in the multilateral international institutions and seeking to change those rules, dictate the multilateral international institutions that for its own benefit. Now, the second lesson which the Chinese foreign policymakers have learned is that any country put forward any foreign policy that would require to have coordinated responses between economics and politics. For the moment on China's responses on war in Ukraine, it is merely a political response, which does not fit into the economic rationality of China. So that is where the policy fallout that might happen. Could you tell us a bit more about the nature of the political response? The nature of political responses is obviously, um, well, China declared a so-called neutrality, but it is a pro-Russian neutrality. Yeah. yeah. So China has offered abstention on several UN votes across UN General Assembly and the Security Council. So China did not directly condemn Russia. But I think the idea behind this, it is not about a so-called strategic partnership with Russia, but rather put in the bigger content of anti-American sentiment within the Chinese foreign affairs community that is less so about Russia itself, but is more about who will be able to counterbalance the United States hegemony, that existing hegemony. However, what China's idea is that while Russia is being, in the good old days, in the relatively good term with Europe and economically stable, even though by just being an energy supplier, which is fine, and then also a united society for Russia itself, and then China could work together with Russia as being a counterweight of U.S. hegemony. But however, a much weaker Russia and also disunited to be China's friends, and I think that's a whole different matter. So Beijing would have to reconsider this option, whether it is viable to suggest that its cooperation with Russia has no limit. And I think that has no limit comments has been overinterpreted and there should be some limits, and that limit should not really jeopardize China's national interest. Yeah, that's that's really interesting because I I do think quite a lot of the analysis on the potential implications for Russia's standing in the world is ultimately that it's going to become far more reliant upon the relations with China. But what's less spoken about, I feel, is is sort of whether China wants that. <laughs> well, let's be right. frank. I mean, <laughs> let's be frank. The two powers are very different in yeah. terms of nature. Mm. Russia is 19th century great power that exert its influence through territorial conquest, like what Russia did in Crimea and what Russia has done in the Middle East and what Russia is doing right now with Ukraine. However, China is a 21st century great power that rely on its economic influence and also rely on its integration with the global economy to extend its political influence. So I think for the moment that because of the different nature of the power and has decided this is so-called strategic partnership, it is actually out of necessity of the anti-American sentiment, but it's not necessarily that they will see each other eye to eye. Yeah, that's fascinating. So to bring it back now to the kind of domestic situation in China, obviously we spoke about this perfect storm of continuing disruption from COVID-19, the war in Ukraine, the cost of living crisis, the previous commitment to common prosperity and the, the drive to try and reduce inequality within China, all contributing to some serious questions 
for President Xi's administration. I suppose my question, without making you look too much into your crystal ball, is mm. is how do you think that's that's likely to play out in the sense of what do you think is going to give first? Because all of these issues, you know, are going to continue. Do you think that the comprehensive thrift strategy is something that's sustainable over the longer term? Or do you think that maybe China will have to reconsider its zero COVID strategy or reconsider its approach to addressing inequality? What what do you think is going to have to change? Well, two things will have to change, obviously. Firstly, this zero COVID strategy, that the population has to be vaccinated and therefore the society has to be open in order to answer your second concern, which is a slower economic growth. So the two things have to go together. As we said earlier, is the prosperity or the stability. It is very hard to separate those two elements. Now, there's also a looming question is, how is China going to handle its longer-term competition with the United States? And that will drive these ideas of the so-called common thrifty strategy. And that is where it drives these ideas of the supply chain security for China itself. You know, the rest of the world has been talking about reliance and dependence on China's um, supply chain. China also has supply chain disruption for itself. So I think the challenge and headache are shared by all the world leaders and China is not alone. It's just because the particular size of the country perhaps make China's responses more alarming. Yeah, thank you. Well, we're going to leave that there, but Beijing Briefing will be back. You've got another column that's just come out this week as we record this, which I hope we can come to in our in our next follow-up episode. But Yujia, thank you again for joining me. Has been wonderful. Thank you so much, Ben. That's it for this episode. Thank you very much for listening to this point. I hope you enjoyed it. We will be back very soon with another episode of our War in Ukraine mini-series. And then beyond that, with standard episodes going into the summer. Wherever you are, thank you very much for continuing to listen to Undercurrents. It really makes such a difference to know that there are people out there still downloading our conversations. If you like what you heard, please do tell your friends and leave us a review on whichever podcast app you use to listen to this as it really really helps other listeners discover our content if you want to stay in touch more broadly with the work of chatham house the best way to do that is to visit our website chathamhouse.org or to follow us on twitter at chatham house until next time thanks for joining us Mm -hmm.